welcome to this Diversity and Inclusivity Finance Forum podcast. Working for difference, making business better and fairer. The DIFF series of podcasts is aimed at helping people from underrepresented groups get into and get on in the mortgage and protection industry and to help everyone understand why genuinely prioritising diversity is good for all of us individually, good for your business and good for the mortgage market as a whole. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the individuals participating and not necessarily of their respective companies either past or present. Hello and welcome to the second DIFF podcast. Uh, This one is called No, Where Are You Really From? and is going to cover the topic of language and microaggressions and diversity and inclusivity. And this is important not just to help create uh, a a DNI positive environment at work, but also in how you relate to customers and clients who may not have the same background as you and how you can avoid unintentionally insulting them or not communicating appropriately. So joining me today is Frank Starling, uh, who is our resident DNI expert. Frank, uh, would you like to introduce yourself and let everyone know uh, why you are regarded as one of the great minds in this space? Thank you, Barat. Very kind of you to say. Uh, hi, everyone. So I'm Frank Starling. I'm founder and CEO of Variety Pack. We're a consultancy that work with organizations to help them learn from opinions that were previously ignored, anticipate change, and create more inclusive environments full of trust and cultures full of confidence that champion the underrepresented. I also act as a London Enterprise Advisor to the Mayor of London, and that helps to bridge the gap between schools and colleges and the business world. And finally, I write for Forbes in diversity, equity, and inclusion. So very pleased to be here to be talking about this topic today, because I think it's a, it's a, it's an interesting one that uh, many of us don't discuss often enough. Okay, well, thanks, uh, Frank. And so microaggressions is maybe a term that's new to uh, quite a few people. Um, so, Frank, what, what uh, are microaggressions uh, before we get into examples of them? I'll try and keep the introduction brief because I think it's one of these terms that can be expanded and covers so many different spheres. But in short, microaggressions are these typical common daily verbal behavioral or environmental actions or slights you know these kind of actions which are usually derogatory they're usually often automatic and i'd say unintentional and they're often delivered by well-intentioned individuals who are completely unaware that they are committing a microaggression and they often impact people who are underrepresented in the workplace. So people of colour, women, you know, those who are part of the LGBTQ plus community, people with disabilities, you know, those religious minorities. And anyone, of course, even those who are part of an underrepresented group can express uh, a microaggression. But in this podcast, I guess it's really important that we flatten the language. So microaggression, in, in short, is essentially unintentional discrimination is probably the best way to phrase it, Barat. And, and I think that is something that we need to 
understand far better what you know what do microaggressions mean in the day-to-day and how can we be more cognizant of the language and you know the, just the general communication that we exhibit it, not just in the workplace but in society as a whole yeah that's a, a very good um explanation Fred. So I, I actually sort of spoke to people uh, my, of a different generation to me as I'm very old. So I spoke to my daughters who uh, are comfortable with the uh, with the phrase mixed race rather than mixed heritage. Uh, they thought mixed heritage made them look like a sound like a funky tomato. Um, but that's just to the foodies. Um, and and the, 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 they had a number of phrases that particularly irritate them. And I suppose this is what you're getting to. Uh, you may not think it's uh, irritating or offending somebody, but it is. And for them, and I think this is a very common one, is where do you really come from? And when they answer that, Isha, the question comes, well, where do your parents come from? And when they answer that, Manchester and Hereford, they then say, no, but then where do they really come from? And I suppose what the questioner is sort of asking is, why are you brown? Um, and because it happens to my daughters and, and lots of other people who uh, you know are brown or black or yellow, um, so often it, it's become quite insulting, hasn't it, Frank? And, and it, it's one of the easiest ones that we can deal with by saying this is not the re- way to ask someone what their heritage is. It, would it be simpler, do you think, if somebody just said, oh, hi, where are you from? Said, oh, and where is your heritage from? Would that be, is that a microaggression or is that a little bit more honest? It can be. It's one of those things which is subjective, really. And I think what we need to be mindful of is how can we avoid making assumptions based on what we see or based on harmful stereotypes? And just to add a bit more context, there are three categories of, of microaggressions. So there's micro insults. So these are often unconscious. And these are behavioral or verbal remarks or comments that convey some sort of rudeness or insensitivity. And typically demean a person's heritage or identity. There's then micro assaults. So these are often conscious. And again, this is something that happens, I'd say, less often in the workplace context. And these are explicit characterization, which are either verbally violent or non-verbally violent. And they're meant to kind of intend uh, harm on a particular individual. And then finally, you've got micro invalidations. So these are often unconscious. These are verbal comments or behaviors that exclude you know, so they nullify the psychological traits or feelings or the reality of an individual's experience. You know, it's kind of when you shut someone down. And the example you gave in terms of asking where someone is from, we can sometimes struggle with that. We can sometimes struggle with, for example, the idea that a black person may also be British, may also be born here. And that stems to this microaggression of where are you from? Right. And, and, and then a follow on question of, well, where are you really from? Because I can't compute the idea that you would have a bit more melanin in your skin uh, and also be born in Britain. I think that can be a challenge for many. And I've been in many conversations over the years where people have asked me that question. Where are you from? Where are you really from? Where are your parents from? 
because they're very keen to establish that I may not be British, just purely based on how I look. So I think it, it gets quite complicated because there are some more things to dive into there in terms of racial microaggressions versus, let's say, gendered microaggressions. But I think in response to that first point, it's how do we avoid making assumptions and how do we use language which is far more inclusive, you know, far more respectful for the diversity of identities that exist, you know, within our regions here. Yeah, that's a very good point, Frank. I mean, for me, I would say people of uh, some of our my work colleagues and my daughter's generation live in a generation where it, it, very nicely it is okay to correct people, and I think that's a step forward. Uh, but actually, people also seem to be much, much more open to be corrected if they have unintentionally insulted. And I think it's important for everyone to be open and be able to discuss what is sort of making them uncomfortable. So, you know, my daughters, I I said to them, if somebody asks you where you're really from, you respond with the question, what you want to know is why am I brown and I'm happy to tell you. Um, So that's quite good. But there are also, and I think this is particularly the case maybe for uh, women, there are insults that come over as backhanded compliments, uh, which are much harder to, and then again, it's very subjective, I agree with you, Frank. So, you know, when people like my daughters are called exotic and, and then are told that they'll have really pretty babies and things, and they find that quite insulting because they think it doesn't actually come from a good place. So, when that sort of thing happens, how, how would you suggest dealing with that? I think the first thing we need to acknowledge is that using words like exotic, for example, in that context is, you know, it, it, it's objectifying people of colour in this, in this example. It's treating them as, as tokens, right? It's, and, and, and it's incredibly common that we may describe a person of colour or someone who wasn't necessarily either born in the UK or they're from a country that we're not necessarily familiar with, all of a sudden they're, they're exotic, right? And I think that's troublesome in, in, in many ways. Firstly, the impact of that type of language can certainly cause diminished confidence, can cause a loss of drive. It can erode your sense of belonging. And it's important that we acknowledge that. And I think addressing this unintentional discrimination, these microaggressions, can be quite complicated because they're not necessarily obvious. But plain truth is that microaggressions can often be harmful, I think, to a person's well-being. And when they occur en masse, it essentially demonstrates that implicit bias is a major problem, let's say, within this institution. And it's undoubtedly going to impact how um, how decisions are made, rather, which leads to, I think, underrepresented people often paying the price. So there are a few different categories in, in terms of microaggressions. And, and you gave one example of a racial, racially kind of charged microaggression. And I think others I see, certainly from my lived experience of being a black man who's also mixed raced, uh, is this assumption of criminality. So for example, I'm six foot seven, you know, I'm pretty tall. So if you see me walking down the street, you may want to kind of cross the road just through the assumption that I'm a tall black man. So there's this assumption that, you know, just because I'm tall, just because I'm black, I may in some way be a criminal. And that's a microaggression. 
you know, that's a stereotype. You know, that is problematic. You know, the, the fact is that I'm not a criminal and I need you to see me as a human being. Or uh, another classic uh, racially, racially charged microaggression is the assumption of intellectual inferiority. And this is where black people or people of color are assumed to be less intelligent. So we talk about uh, a true meritocracy a lot in the UK. We say that we have created work environments. We're a true meritocracy. So we hire the best people. I'm sure you've heard that a lot. And that for me, that suggests that if our work environment is homogeneous, if it's if, if it has an overrepresentation of the white community, because we hire the best people, the best people must not be those who identify as black and people of color. When in reality, we know that barriers exist for individuals from different racial groups or those who speak, for example, speak different languages to enter the workplace and flourish in senior leadership. And those are just a few examples in terms of racial uh, microaggressions. I guess another example where women may be challenged, so the kind of gender-based microaggressions is sexual objectification. And that is something which is incredibly common, especially in industries of property and finance. You know, when a woman is treated essentially as a sexual object. And this is not just troublesome, it's demeaning. You know, it's something that shouldn't happen. You know, it's something that is clearly unacceptable. And I think what we need to be more mindful of is how can we be challenged? How can we focus on the words used? How can we focus on the actions demonstrated? So what we're not trying to do is shame and demonize people for what is often an unconscious remark or action. What we are trying to do is become more enlightened by positively challenging ourselves in that moment and explaining that the words or actions which have just been perpetrated could be considered to be a microaggression. And, and I think this is why we've got to create work cultures which are full of allies. And allies for me are individuals who recognize their unearned privilege and are more aware of when these things happen around them. I couldn't agree with you more, um, Frank. I also think that um, we need to be mindful of ourselves. And, and you know, you mentioned uh, women in the workplace, and I still think there is a great deal of mansplaining that still happens. And, um, you know, and I'm sure that I've done it and I don't intend to do it. And I and I want to be called out if I'm straying into sort of explaining things slower or um, not as I would explain it to somebody of the same age, the same uh, gender as I am. Right. Um, and, and I think it's, it, it is important that people begin to recognize that they do, may do it themselves and ask to be called out about it if they are doing it, especially in a business environment. Um, you know, and I hope nobody says calm down, dear, anymore, but I can't be absolutely sure that somewhere out there somebody isn't saying that to uh, a female right this very minute, uh, and that still is quite uh, ridiculous. Uh, I, I'd like to move on then in the use of adjectives, um, Frank, um, because I, I heard David Lammy speaking, who um, has said that he's often called angry uh, in the House of Commons. And yet, uh, if you take an oscilloscope to um, the range of his 
speaking, it's not that much different from Michael Gove, and nobody would ever call Michael Gove angry. And and David Lammy feels that this is one of those things when a black man becomes passionate about his subject, it is uh, the response in a lot of the white audience is that he's angry. Um, and, you know, that is also the case um, in terms of one of our work colleagues who is um, a, a six foot two black uh, young man uh, is also irritated by the way that footballers are quite often, black footballers are often described by the adjectives of pace and power and strength and much less so with the adjectives of control and touch and leadership, etc. So what would your thoughts be on, on, on being careful about the adjectives we think of when we see colour? It's a great point, Barat, and it's something that I see not just play out in my own daily life, but in the work that we do uh, in Variety Pack as, as diversity consultants, where individuals feel like they are being classified based on their characteristics. So the example you use in terms of David Lammy, you know, speaking with passion, speaking with clarity, you know, speaking with purpose, and yet he may be regarded as angry or as combative in some way. And this, I think, feeds directly into the stereotypes we hold based on our lived experiences. So we've all had a very unique lived experience in life. Some of us have had more academic or economic privilege than others. Some of us had had the opportunity to be invisible in society. Some of us are obviously far more visible. And our perception of the world is something that we've built up obviously over our entire lifetime, the friends that we hold, the stories that we read, the kind of workplace cultures that we are part of. So therefore, when we look outside to communicate with the outside world, we don't necessarily recognize how stereotypes play a role in terms of how we communicate and how we perceive different groups of people based on their racial group, their ethnicity, their religion, their gender identity, those with physical disabilities. Because this is where we see microaggressions happen most often. It's for those who are underrepresented. And quite plainly, what I would say is the best way to challenge that is to recognize where do I hold an assumption or a stereotype based on an individual without any kind of proof whatsoever. So for example, if I, if I don't know David Lammy, if I don't know him as an individual how on earth could i make the assumption based purely on their communication style that he is angry you know angry is a very per being angry is a very personal emotion and for me that just says that that person is being stereotyped for the fact that they are speaking in a particular way they have a very specific communication style and they are black so i, I think ultimately just to flatten the language what we're trying to do is slow our thinking down to consider what stereotypes we hold on people. You know, things that we've just decided may be the truth, but aren't actually rooted in the truth. And we've got to challenge ourselves, you know, because these stereotypes are incredibly harmful. For example, when black women are considered to be angry, that impacts not just their career prospects, but it impacts 
their place in society. It erodes their feeling of belonging. And when you expand that, there are many different examples of stereotypes that we hold that we are afraid to challenge ourselves on because we don't want to be considered to be bad people. We don't want to be told that the language we use or the actions we perpetrate may be rooted in some sort of prejudice, some sort of racism, sexism, xenophobia, transphobia. These things happen very often. So I think it starts with that acknowledgement that we all hold stereotypes of some forms and we've got to work towards dismantling these stereotypes because they're incredibly harmful. And when our language is not inclusive, it can really impact people in an incredibly negative way. You know, it can impact their well-being, their mental health, their physical health. And uh, Professor Daryl Wing Sue is the authority on this and has spoken a lot about the different experiences of people in daily life and in careers based on their experience of microaggressions. And, and, and the, the best way for us to change this is really knowing what microaggressions are, the unintentional discrimination, how it plays out in the day-to-day and what we can do to change that. That's some very good points there, um, Frank. It's interesting, isn't it? Because I know I have got um, some real stereotypes and it doesn't actually come um, from a work environment uh, or, or an industry environment. It comes from being a football supporter. So I was born and bred in the borough of Old Trafford and I'm a passionate Manchester United supporter. As a passionate Manchester United supporter, I have got automatic, built-in, grown up with stereotypes about other football team supporters. And I'm sure um, everybody's got them. And I think whilst these, it's sort of, you know, tribal and it's a sport and nobody thinks they're going to be particularly insulting. But that thought process, if it spills out, if your ability to... Um, live with a stereotype and use a stereotype in whatever circumstances spills into uh, your work environment or your personal environment or your social environment, then it it can become quite harmful. And I think um, being mindful and talking slowly and thoughtfully is probably the best way to make sure that that doesn't happen. Uh, And, you know, if there's one takeaway here, uh, I think that, that that must be one of them. And I guess just a point on that, Brian, really quickly, is that, you know, we're, what we're not saying is that we we shouldn't communicate. We shouldn't joke about with our colleagues. You know, we, we shouldn't try to get along with people. You know, we shouldn't be afraid, is my point here. You know, we're going to get things wrong at times. And I'm not trying to validate that that's okay. But what I'm trying to explain is that is part of the process. And what we need to recognise is that, you know, the, the assumptions we make, the stereotypes we hold impact the decisions we make as well and how we communicate with people. So we just need to be a bit more respectful by recognising that this is a very real thing and it can cause a lot of harm and damage to our work cultures and society as a whole. You know, it, it, we can't move away from this point where, you know, we, we, we talk and share our stories and, you know, share our life experiences. I think that's incredibly important, but we can do it in a way which removes assumptions and stereotypes. That absolutely is possible and, and is a goal that I think we should all be working towards. And I suppose it makes for a much more comfortable workspace. 
if you're not always concerned about what you can say, if, if you have an, an environment where if you do say something unintentional but uh, microaggressive, um, you accept that it's pointed out to you and you um, adjust your behaviour and your language set and your communication you know, prospects accordingly. Um, so I think that's, that has to be an environment that you have to work towards. Are there anything um, else that you can do, you know, in, in the business environment, Frank, to make sure that um, if somebody is feeling aggressed, right, that they can do something about it? Are there any uh, process and protocols that you've actually put into other companies that you can suggest uh, companies that are listening to this um, can make use of? There are a number, number of things which I think are really important to have in place. You've got to have the right tools and processes in the event that someone not just experiences a microaggression, but something more insidious, something more conscious. You know, conscious discrimination is something that exists in the workplace, and we have to have the right processes to deal with that. But I guess I'll start off with, we want to ensure that we're not choosing to impose our reality on other people. And what I mean by that is if I was in a workplace right now and I'm in a team conversation with 15 people and someone on that call says something that I believe is rooted in racism, and let's just call it for what it is. It's rooted in racism. It's a comment which I consider to be racist. You know, the words used in that comment aren't particularly discriminatory. You know, I don't necessarily take them to an offence where, you know, I want to report them to HR. But I do believe that the language is inappropriate. You know, what, what do I do in that instance? Well, I may speak to a colleague that knows that individual and, and, and say, well, look, do you mind having a chat with them? Because I think what they said on the call was somewhat inappropriate to those who are from diverse communities. And in that moment, that person that I confide in may choose to impose their reality on me and they may shut me down and say, well, look, I know that person. And what I would say is that they're not racist. You know, they will never say something intentionally, which was meant to be harmful in any way. And the, the very first point there is that we have to recognize that every single version of reality, their lived experience is unique to them. So we shouldn't be in that moment, we shouldn't be imposing our reality on other people. We should be empathetic. And I think that is the very first you know, point that we need to consider in terms of how microaggressions play out in the workplace. I think when it's more insidious, when, for example, it's conscious discrimination, this is built up over time, then we want to ensure that we've got the right tools to tackle that. So those those tools could mean a process, a clear process away from your employee handbook that speaks to discrimination, which is specific. So, for example, racist, if I experience racism in the workplace, how do I deal with that? What are the next steps? Because I don't necessarily feel comfortable to air my concerns. I don't want to be marked as a person who's a troublemaker. So what is a process that I can follow, which still allows me to feel empowered you know is that speaking to an individual is that submitting a complaint in a particular way i shouldn't as an employee as someone who's part of this team i shouldn't have to dive into 
13 pages of an employee handbook to consider how I can report that incident. In the day-to-day, though, you know, if it's an unintentional uh, remark, if it's something which is not rooted in a conscious bias, if it's not conscious discrimination, then we should be trying to create safe spaces or even brave spaces, you know, where we can challenge each other healthily. And again, focus on the words as opposed to the individual. So I'm not trying to call someone out. What I'm trying to say is the things that have just been said, I find to be in some way discriminatory to individuals. And this is what we need to recognize, I think, to change our language, to to make it more relatable and inclusive. So there are many different things that I think companies can implement. But I think in the first instance, it's knowing that we shouldn't impose our reality on other people. And we should recognize that if someone raises a concern, then ultimately it's a valid concern because that's their perception of reality. Let's soundboard it. Let's empathize. And let's think about how we can do better. That's that's good advice and, and something that I think people should take note of. Let's go back and um, discuss again these things that sh- are, are should be positive and are compliments, but, but end up being uh, microaggressions. And I've got a couple of examples which I'd like uh, you your thoughts on. One uh, comes from one of um, my own colleagues who's a, a marketeer, who, again, as I said, he's a, he's a, he's a handsome six-foot-two black gentleman, who uh, does a lot of the work in telemarketing and has often been said or a couple of times has been told you don't sound black now i think that's an insult uh, but i don't think it was intended as uh, how how should uh, he react to that and, and then another example uh, where my daughter who works as a journalist in the reinsurance space uh, often goes to events where she's not only the only brown person there, but sometimes the only woman there as well, uh, and is told, it's really good to see somebody like you here. And again, I think that's quite insulting too. How would you suggest reacting to that in a positive and gentle way? You know, not sort of throwing a compliment back at somebody, but asking them to think about what they've said a bit more. So in that first point of you don't sound black I think I think it's quite similar to calling a black person articulate you know in but uh, I'd say it's that much worse because um, what does sounding black look like what does that actually mean for me that statement suggests that if you are an articulate black man if you're well spoken you are an anomaly you know you are different from the other black people in society. You know, according to this person's view of the world, black people don't necessarily sound articulate, aren't necessarily well-spoken. Let's face it, that's an incredibly harmful stereotype. Does that mean that the person that said that comment in the moment meant to cause any harm? I'd say probably not. I think it was a well-intentioned comment, but I think what we are doing is we're grouping together people based on their ethnicity, on their racial group. And we're making very broad assumptions as to what that racial group stands for, who they are, how they act, for example. You know, if, I'm, if I say to someone, I'm a black person, I grew up on a council estate, who do they envision in their mind? And that is me, 
you know, I'm a black person that grew up on a council estate. But fundamentally, there are a lot of people that in their mind, they're holding stereotypes and assumptions. So I think there's no fixed way to respond to that. I think the perpetrator needs to recognize that black people, just like white people, just like brown people, come in all shapes and forms. We all have different heights. We all have different educational backgrounds. We all have different access to academic and economic privilege. And that means who we are is just who we are. You know, there's no defined version of each person based on their race or ethnicity. And I think it's down to you in that moment as to whether you respond to that or not. I think when, we, when we're alone and we're, it's a kind of an interpersonal connection, it's a one-on-one conversation and we experience a microaggression, you know, we may just want to let it pass. You know, we may just not want to focus on it because we don't have time or we've already experienced the microaggression earlier that day, so it's too much to deal with. But I think if you are considering how can I use this as a teachable moment, you could ask that person, you know, what does a black person sound like in that case? You know, let's let's pull that out. You know, let's define that because that for me recognizes that, you know, we're speaking based on assumptions and stereotypes. And and your second point, Barack, could you just repeat that again? Please? It was it was it was an example of my daughter being at a reinsurance sort of event or conference where somebody said to her, "It's good to see someone like you here." Uh, and whilst that was a compliment, she it made her feel a little uncomfortable because it highlighted the fact that she was the only woman and the only brown person, you know, in in a room of about thirty forty people, and you know, to see any advice that you could give her about how she could have responded to that or used that sort of uh, comment to you know, make, make a more um, valid point about the um, perhaps monochrom- monochromatic nature of the industry that she was in at the time. So I think what we need to recognize it, it's not always the, vi- you know, it's not typically I'd say the victim's responsibility to teach the perpetrator about microaggressions, teach them something new, because they've been slighted and they have the right to walk away. They have the right to be upset. You know, they have the right to have a quiet moment, you know, when they hear something which erodes their sense of belonging. But I think in that instance, we're trying to challenge that person that, you know, this, this, this place that we are at now is a place which is meant for everyone. You know, yes, we may see a more, you know, we, we may typically see uh, a person from a particular identity here more often, but I shouldn't be made to feel a particular way. So, you know, I, I'd say that it, it, it's challenging to, in that way, especially if you don't know someone, it's, it, it's incredibly challenging to then get into a conversation about microaggressions with them. But I think what we're on, the overarching theme is that we live in a society which has been created for a kind of a white dominant culture. And that is problematic. That is troublesome because that means if someone speaks in a particular way, we consider that to be foreign or exotic. If someone has a different tone of skin, we find that, you know, we are curious. You know, we find that interesting. You know, we're objectifying these individuals. And if we take London, for example, London is 40% diverse communities. It's 40% BAME, as many people would say. So that means these communities, 
exist here. You know, we live in diversity, even across the UK. I know it thins out as you enter certain regions, but what we need to recognise is that diversity is the norm. It's not an anomaly. And comments like that just shouldn't be said. And I, I don't think it's down to the victim in the moment to teach that person. It's only if they really feel compelled to should they challenge that individual on their assumptions and stereotypes. Excellent. So um, I, I think we've uh, explored the, these points and microaggressions, and I hope that we've given everybody some food for thought on this. Um, so if we sort of have three takeaways from, from this, Frank, would you, would you say very succinctly, um, make sure that there are safe and brave places in your company where people can talk about this? Everybody should be a little more mindful about the language they use. That's not saying that they can't uh, use adjectives and they can't tell jokes, but they just need to be mindful about it. And that uh, as a society, we need to correct and be willing to be corrected much more readily than we have been. Have you got anything to add to those three brief points? I think just one final point on that, Barat, is let's encourage a healthy discussion on what microaggressions are you know, and how best to avoid them. Let's recognise that un it's often unintentional. Unintentional discrimination is a very real thing. Uh, and we have to distinguish that from insidious, conscious discrimination. But for both, we should have processes in place that allow us to challenge our thinking, which will ultimately help to create work cultures which are just far more inclusive, where we can relate to each other and communicate in a way which is always respectful. Thank you very much, Frank. And if anybody wants to contact Frank, then his details will be on the Mortgage Solutions website. So thank you very much, Frank. And uh, that's it from us until next time. Thank you very much.